privileged to welcome my next guest, CEO of Coast Mental Health, Keir McDonald. Coast Mental Health is a Vancouver-based nonprofit organization. They support those living with mental challenges, providing them with resources such as housing support services, employment, education opportunities, etc. Keir McDonald has a wealth of experience, a passion for people, and expertise that adds a lot to this dialogue. It's perfect timing to discuss mental health, mental illness, and how to overcome some of the challenges that those who are experiencing mental illness are facing currently in our province. I welcome to Rachel Dexton Connects, CEO of Coast Mental Health, Kira McDonald. Okay, Kier, when you and I have known each other for a fairly short period of time, although we've spoken quite a bit, and I think that's because there's just so much to talk about right now related to the mental health space. And we're both, you know, obviously passionate and interested, and you're clearly um, more so than I being involved in the in the work space. Um, but I wanted to have you on today. And then I realized that next week when the episode is going to be posted, it's actually mental health week. So it's, it's actually suitable timing. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Rachel. I mean, it's exciting to be on the show and talk about this important issue. And I have to say, I've, I've listened along to some of the previous episodes as well. And we've had some you know, really amazing individuals and, and thank you for, for bringing these stories to, to a broader audience. Of course, it's my pleasure. I enjoy it and I learn from it and I hope uh, others do as well. So you, uh, in your work, in your career and reading over your bio and having coffee with you, have a passion for mental health and helping people. Uh, some of them may be struggling with more serious mental illness or homelessness, maybe substance use disorder. What led you into the mental health sector versus perhaps another health sector or another career path? Big question to open up. Um, in many <laughs> ways, I don't think many people, um, you know, most people working in the charitable sector saw themselves doing this work when they were growing up, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I was one who kind of just fell into it. Um, but my, my connection to the work really dates back to, to my early years of school. And I've always had a passion for social justice, human rights, uh, university. You know, I majored in sociology, international law with a specialization in human rights law. And even though I never planned on practicing law, those those years working in Australia were, were definitely foundational to developing the skill, skills I still use today. Um, but really my journey started on this path when I came to Vancouver in 2010. And first of all, worked with an organization called BC Housing. Um, it was really there that I rediscovered, you know, what doing social purpose-driven work was or purpose-driven work, um, you know, what all that was about. and. You know, after leaving BC Housing, I've been working in the, the social profit sector for nearly a decade and um, arrived at Coast Mental Health late last year. Um, you know, and I think along the way, uh, these issues just, um, you know, you, you said we talk a little bit, you know, things like homelessness, substance mm -hmm. use addiction, mental health, like... I don't know of three bigger things we talk about in this day and age. Um, you know, they are such topical issues and they're issues that are just, they're impacting everyone. I agree. Um, and so it's hard when you get exposed to some, um, of these issues and people impacted and affected by them. Um, as you got to know people who, 
for people like anyone else and 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 really as you get to understand some of the systems and impact um that are placed upon people it's uh definitely from that social justice perspective um has you know i've been drawn to that work and drawn to um doing whatever i can um to help shift systems and help um you know in whatever way you know whatever way i can um okay mm-hmm. i wouldn't mind telling this is a little bit about coast mental health as well is, is that all right please do yes <laughs> i think people want to know the difference between various organizations so tell us about coast mental health well coast was uh was formed just over 50 years ago um and it's guided by a mission really to support advocate for and promote the recovery of people with mental illness um you know we provide housing support services for individuals that are houseless or at risk of homelessness those living on low incomes, those that are struggling with mental illness and, and often substance use as well. Um, you know, we have services like the Mental Health Clubhouse on East 11th Kingsway in Vancouver and Drop-In Centre in, in Seymour Street in Davie, um, where people can access meals, laundry, showers, housing outreach workers and, and services like that. Um, I also really love some of the innovative programs uh, Coast Delivers. You know, we were one of the first agencies to introduce peer support training back in 2009. Um, we still run a, an adult and young adult program and you know, we offer employment programs which which focus on building client skills and supporting them, you know, transitioning to meaningful you know, work and employment. Um, and then we also have, you know, our Coast Social Enterprise Foundation, uh, which operates two social enterprises, our, our Social Craft Cafe and Catering and Landscaping with Heart. And uh, really the work done by these social enterprises is another way of helping to reduce stigma and and support those recovering from mental illness. Um, you know, there was really something special, incredibly special about the work that Coast does that drew me to come and work here. And I don't think there's anyone whose mental health was not negatively impacted by the COVID pandemic over the last few years. And this yes. really is an issue that touches everyone. Um, and I just feel we need to be doing much more in this area. Yes, you, you make a really good point. I think that, you know, we talk a lot about people who had COVID-19 and the after effects of that, but we talk very little about those who did not, but are, you know, regular citizens, residents, such as you and I, who uh, may have, you know, a, a real lasting effect from the isolation and the COVID burnout, they're calling it, post-COVID burnout. Um, and are you noticing that you're seeing more of that uh, in your work post-pandemic? Yeah, I mean, uh, to your first point, it's um, whether, um, you know, whether you had a mental illness, existing mental illness or, you know, use substances, before COVID or not, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll be one to say that I was impacted. You know, my mental health, particularly in that first six months, you know, we we were sprinting um, to sort of respond, and you know, you're just going from, you know, just trying to do the best you can to keep sustaining, but just we were being thrown by, you know, issue after issue and just new challenge after challenge, and you know, it got to a point I think probably three four months in, and I just I was tapped. Um, you know, it's uh, and and. That's just me. I think everyone to a degree, um, I can't imagine the pandemic didn't hit or, you know, it impacted most Canadians, but really those working in healthcare settings, um, I think were, were some of the most greatly impacted. Um, yes. you know, the pressure, the workload just been so relentless that 
it definitely led to burnout and uh, and staffing shortages, whether that's you know in in hospitals, but it's definitely happened in the the nonprofit sector as well. And that then put pressure on those remaining in the workplace. <laughs> so yes. it's um you know it's really I think we're starting to see a little bit more attention now around the role employers have to play in supporting the mental health of their employees. Um, but it's yeah I think when we think about mental illness, you know obviously they are diagnosed conditions, but mental health is. It's a topic that affects us all. It does, and uh, we see it, and it's um, we see it in more obvious ways, perhaps around the city of Vancouver. Um, but it's also uh, kind of hidden in in other places, such as the workplace, um, in homes, in fat within families, within friendships, things like that. One of the things that you mentioned here that I thought was was really important was um, you mentioned uh, one of the offerings, showers, uh, a facility that offers showers. And those are things that we we really take for granted and that people desperately need and want. Um, when people think about mental health, they, you know, they kind of have some thoughts, each person, depending on their experience and their, you know, different levels of, you know, maybe work in the space or education on the space. They think of depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, lately, are you finding that there are more of certain mental illnesses or is it just really a combination of all and there's really a connection to that that post-COVID like we've talked about? Yeah, and this may be a little bit driven by some of the work we do at Coast and, and, and even a little bit to a degree at my former organization, but still the most common condition that we work with is concurrent disorders. Um, and, and really for, for listeners that don't quite know what that is, it's, um, it's a term used to describe the presence of both mental health disorder and substance use disorder in an individual. So that means a person dealing with both a mental illness or an addiction and an addiction to drugs at the same time. And so I think and we've, we've heard and seen a lot about, um, a lot of talk about that. I think, uh, the other pieces you touched on are, are, are probably the most common for us, you know, after that, which is the mood disorders. So bipolar anxiety, depression, you know, it, I think we, we do a lot of the complex work. And um, and so I think that's why we see more individuals that do have those co-occurring disorders. But in terms of the, the dedicated mental health work that we do, um, you know, it, it really is still the, the main ones. Um, and I think that those, again, those were conditions that got exacerbated during the pandemic. Yes. Uh, sorry, it's just I'm just considering all of the things that are happening in our city right now. And it's just it's such a such a challenging and, and layered and, cha- and difficult situation. And it's very sad. And every time I kind of, you know, I see someone who's struggling, uh, want to find an answer. And I'm sure you, you feel the way I do as you're working with your clients. How do you take care of your own mental health when it comes to kind of, you know, really seeing these challenging um, cases and perhaps sometimes not being able to offer them everything you wish you could? Yeah, I think so often we see um, a situation in front of us that we don't fully understand. We can see um, an individual that might be struggling. Um, it's easy to apply labels sometimes. It's, um, you know, we we don't really know what's going on for people. Um, we don't know how people came to be where they're at. Um, and so really, when it's me in that situation, you know, looking, looking at an individual that appears to be struggling, it's just, I think what people need so much is just that basic compassion, even that acknowledgement. So often people, if we're talking about individuals that are unhoused, you know, often living on the streets, it's just, you often hear comments being made about how invisible they feel. 
mm-hmm. and how sometimes it's just the simplest gestures, um, you know, even just saying hi. <laughs> um, you know, yes. I know some people don't, you know, feel like they want to give money and things like that, but, you know, sometimes it's just, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Um, you know, in, in all the time I've spent sort of being even sort of on street-based work, like, I just haven't ever experienced sort of, you know, those violent interactions and those negative interactions. And I think where you approach things from genuine sort of humanity and compassion, um, people respond to that. And uh, mm-hmm. sometimes less is more and not maybe not to overcomplicate it. It's just, that, you know, but uh, and I think the other piece is just trying to do a little bit to understand um, some of these social challenges. And, um, you know, education is a big part. There's just so much stigma um, yeah. around uh, the topics we're talking about today. Yes, the stigmas are a huge problem. I've had guests tell me, and I agree with them, that the stigmas are often uh, just as, you know, in some in some cases, deadly uh, as the, whether it be substance use disorder or mental illness itself, uh, because it brings on that shame and that secrecy um, that can lead someone to not seek help. Uh, are there any stigmas that, or any one stigma or one or two stigmas that you really notice that you'd like to debunk today while we chat about mental health, mental illness? Yeah, I think the biggest ones we continue to hear about today, which concern me, are that people with mental illness are violent or dangerous. You know, it's such a harmful stereotype um, that honestly isn't supported by evidence. It, uh, in fact, People with mental illness are more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators of it. And, uh, you know, we saw some of that last year with, you know, some of the folks that were just vulnerable and unhoused and, you know, some of those violent attacks. Um, you know, another common one we hear about is everyone who's experiencing homelessness struggles with mental health and addictions. You know, those stereotypes really fail to recognize other factors um, that can and often contribute to homelessness, including poverty, things like lack of affordable housing, unemployment. Um, as well as systemic issues like racism, discrimination. So, I mean, mm-hmm. we hear a lot about stigma reduction, whether we're talking about substance use, mental illness, um, you know, and, and there has been, I think there has been um, growth and we have sort of evolved a little bit, but I think there is still so much, and when you talk about stigma, but the shame you mentioned, before, you know, that goes along with that, um, that, that individuals carry. Yes, we have to chip away at it. You know, it's, I, I think it's something that doesn't happen. Uh, well, I know it's something that doesn't happen instantly, but I think every conversation, every piece of education, every, uh, dialogue you have with an individual can chip away at those, at those uh, stigmas. There are, you know, there's been cases of violence. Uh, obviously some of them may have been exaggerated. Uh, but there are those who feel as though it's the, uh, you know, the drug user, those who are suffering from mental illness, who are uh, really causing these uh, issues of vandalism and violence in our city. And and that concerns me, certainly. I, I don't agree with that. Uh, I assume you don't as well. Yeah. And that's why I just sort of wanted to, you know, that was a couple of the ones, I guess, that I was talking about debunking. You know, it's, um, mm-hmm. you know, we heard this narrative a lot during the recent municipal election in the city of Vancouver. Um but, but lately, we've also seen some heartbreaking incidents and, you know, that have taken place in, in recent weeks. You know, the stabbings in Surrey and Vancouver. You know, these are incredibly tragic events. I don't blame people for wanting answers or for, you know, to have someone or something to blame. But 
Um, you know, are, are there people committing vandalism and violent crimes that are under the influence of, of drugs and mental illness? Of course, you know, um, but there are labels that I think are too generally applied. And, you know, there was, uh, I believe, a public safety report released late last year by um, uh, Doug Lepard and, and Dr. Amanda Butler. You know, they did suggest that some of the increased um, drug toxicity um, was likely a contributor to some of that increased violence, particularly those that might have been using stimulants, methamphetamine, etc. Um, but again, it's 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 like and it's like is that is that what's driving the majority of the crimes? I you know again the evidence doesn't support that, but obviously the um, you know it's often what you see on the news, right? And so that's what. If you see it, you believe it, and it just becomes that narrative. Yes. I want to shift to housing because I think it's an important part of this. And I've been speaking with a, a couple of other nonprofits who agree that it's it's a vital part of this. I see you posting on social media about housing and how it plays into supporting those uh, who are recovering from uh, a mental illness or an episode that's more serious. Can you tell me why you feel housing is key and how this plays into supporting those um, who have mental illness that tends to affect their life on a, a regular or somewhat regular basis? Yeah. No, look, I, I do often get labeled a bit of a housing guy and I do talk about it a lot, but really that's because I believe that everything starts with housing. You know, housing is such a crucial component in addressing the issues that vulnerable individuals face. It, it provides that stability, safety, um, security. Um, and conversely, without stable housing, you know, many individuals struggle to access essential resources and services like healthcare, um, education, employment. So, you know, they're also at a higher risk of experiencing physical and emotional harm, including, you know, exposure to extreme weather conditions, violence. We talked about people that are, that are unhoused living on the streets and exploitation. But when people have access to safe and affordable housing, it can provide such an important foundation um, for addressing other issues they may be facing. Um, you know, so having that stable place to live can give individuals a better opportunity to manage mental health and addiction, um, mm-hmm. as well as provide, you know, a sense of community and support. Okay. Yeah. When you work in substance use services or in mental health, like how on earth do you expect someone to be paying attention to, you know, reduce substance use when you know you're sleeping you know on cardboard on on the street or if mm-hmm. you're you know you're, you're having to stay awake um each night because you risk you know the, the threat of violence um because you just have no safety so you know housing again they talk about these, these basic needs and you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs for me like shelter has <laughs> always just been that fundamental piece and i think you know not not just a shelter bed but a, but a home and and once you've got that I, you know we talk about housing first, but, you know, that's, that's only supposed to be the first step. So, you know, once we've got people safely housed, you know, there really are opportunities to build upon that. So in many ways, I just really believe that's where it all starts. Okay. So it must be challenging. Uh, government has announced some significant, uh, you know, funding pieces, which are very important. It's a very layered issue. Um, if you had to control, uh, you'd, you'd put more resources into uh, transitional housing, things like that, uh, for those who may be coming out of um, mental health treatments and wanting to integrate back into the community. Yeah, look, I mean, there was, to be fair to government, there was a lot to like about, um, mm-hmm. you know, the recent BC budget that was announced. I mean, big figures. I mean, $4.2 billion over three years towards things like housing you touched on. Um you know, whether that was just building new homes or 
supportive complex care housing. Um, you know, I think it was about another billion announced for mental health and addictions, um, you know, including you know, treatment recovery services, other substance use services. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I mean, they're, they're vital contributions. Um, but for me, there, there was a letdown. Uh, a bit of a letdown in in that announcement, and I really believe there's still more we can be doing for mental health. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was like we talked before a little bit about the co-occurring disorders. So again, we were there, we saw announcements and investment where folks are experiencing a combination of mental health and substance use. But um, you know, did we really see improved access to to quality, timely, equitable mental health care in this year's budget? You know, I I don't think so. You know, I'm one that has been calling on both federal and provincial leaders to to help ensure you know everyone has access to free mental health care wherever they are, whenever they need it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we don't have that right now. You really you've got to sort of be accessing the hospital level care. Um, you know, I, I credit some of the work done by the BC Greens, who at least you know proposing policy, and I think they had had a 12 month pilot project. They had suggested around authorizing psychologists to become eligible care providers through MSP. Um, you know that. Again, we have expanded access to, to treatment and therapy at that point in time. So, you know, government caught a lot of grief from time to time. But, you know, it's, it's have to pay credit where credit's due, and there has been some significant investments. But um, given the mental health work we do, I just I think that it's, it's it's important to keep shining a spotlight in you know what, what where we have grown and where we haven't grown. Yes. And you're very close to it. So obviously, you know, passionate about um, areas where you see there being gaps. Uh, Can you just quickly, can you say very slowly what the term is for those who are experiencing mental illness and substance use disorder? Well, we would call them concurrent or co-occurring disorders. Okay. So I thought, I would have thought that the majority of cases would be those because if you are experiencing a mental illness, um, you would be trying to self-medicate those negative feelings or feelings that are not pleasant. Um, I'm not asking you for data on the spot, certainly, but yeah. I would imagine that there are quite a few who are experiencing this co-occurring situation, which really does put you know, two great challenges in front of them that they need to overcome. Yeah, 100%. And, and as I mentioned, I think earlier on, you know, that is the most common um, diagnosis that we do work with at Coast Mental Health. But, you know, our, our systems just aren't structured well to support it. You know, we, we built systems that were just straight mental health, um, you know, so licensed mental health care. So, but if you were using substances, you're not eligible. Like there are, there are clear barriers still to this day that exist for, um, you know, we have a system that if you have substance use needs, you go into substance use treatment, but so few don't have dedicated mental health resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 it's quite frustrating because as you say, we are seeing more and more individuals that need support in both areas. And, you know, I, I think that's part of why they talked about having a mental health and addictions ministry. They were trying to sort of bridge these, what had been historic silos, but it has been a very long time and still, you know, we're not close. Um, we, we do see dedicated investments for those concurrent disorders, but, um, you know, outside of Redfish, you know, I had this conversation just this week. Um, there was a mother trying to get her son, um, into a service that provided, you know, a high level of mental health care, um, but was struggling with addiction. And outside of Redfish, no one can refer him anywhere. Mm-hmm. And he's in and out of hospital and on the streets and, you know, at risk and, you know, just facing a wait list because, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing program from everything I hear at Redfish, but we just don't have the system 
um, to properly support these needs. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I've been through the system uh, years ago and family members and friends have been through it and it's very frustrating. Um, I'm sure it has improved since I have experienced and my family have and friends have experienced it, but even now I have friends and peers who are navigating it and, and navigating it is tough, especially when you're not at, in your best place, right? When you're in either, you know, a um, substance use disorder or you're experiencing uh, a mental illness where um, it's not easy to navigate the, the system. And so that would make it even, even more challenging. Oh, it does, you know, and so again, I often get calls from people that just again they know I'm connected to this to the system and this network and I like at times I struggle like to navigate and you know this is what me and like our teams do sort of 24 7 you know family members try to figure this out for loved ones um you know referrals here and wait lists there and it's just you know people see people struggling and they just want to have timely access to care they want to know what is the right resource and I think right now we've got a lot of work to do to help educate and and explain what's available you know how do you access it um and 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 to start reducing some of the wait lists that people experience whether it's accessing detox or withdrawal management services there's often delays then into treatment um which which we hear about and so you know again that places people at risk and then you touched a little bit earlier as well like when people are exiting (laughs) treatment then where um you know so often people aren't connected to housing resources mm-hmm. what would you say here i ask people this question who work in 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 challenging roles and who do work that causes i would imagine you know emotional strain uh, what would you say is one of your biggest joys in working in the mental health sector yeah i mean that's what drives you, right? Like it's, um, look, there's nothing I love to see more than when people getting the support they need and, and really how much they can thrive when, when that happens. And, you know, I've been able to see journeys literally from folks that were struggling and unhoused coming into a program, um, you know, completing treatment, getting the services they need, moving into housing and then even onto, onto permanent housing, getting employed, you know, um, going back to school. I mean, those are the kinds of things that, that, that drive me. Um, I, I love opening new programs and services, you know, creating new homes um, is a big thing. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, like most people with mental illness can lead good lives. It's just so contingent upon them receiving appropriate support and, and treatment that they need. I've always found it interesting, and I'd love your take on this, that the brain is you know, the center of, of the human body. And they're so, compared to what the medical field knows about the rest of the body. Um, there seems to be such a lack of what the medical field knows, GPs, your regular GP or et cetera, knows about the brain, meaning, you know, mental health. Um, do you find that interesting? And I know that's improving. And, you know, I, I mentioned Dr. Gabor Mati a, a few times on podcasts because I just really enjoy his alternative look at things. And, you know, I, I enjoy reading his his books, but I mean, do you find that disappointing and surprising that there's not more focus on the brain and mental health and so much focus on the physical um, part of health? Yeah, I mean, it really is still such an emerging field. I mean, it was really 19th century um, and, you know, it wasn't that long ago we, we had things like Riverview and institutionalized care and, you know, trying to figure out what are those um what are the right approaches to treatment, you know, and um, I 
credit the researchers and, and the amazing sort of psychiatrists and, and work, you know, that, that, that are doing that work. But I think it's still, there's still a lot of, it's one of those areas where we have, have to continue to develop our understanding, you know, and some of the complexities you touched before a little bit on sort of the overlapping conditions of mental health and addictions and what came first. Um, you know, many do have those underlying sometimes unaddressed, undiagnosed, unmet needs on mental health that, that do lead them to substance use. I think you touched again on, and even Gabamate, you know, like the trauma component, you know, mm-hmm. their substance use is so often um, occurring to, to uh, you know, really as a, as a medication, as, as a way of masking some underlying pain, trauma condition that uh, that is harming people. Um, so we've, mm-hmm. we've come some way, um, you know, but uh, definitely more work to do and, and not just on, you know, again, um, your mental illness itself, but, you know, again, substance use is a lot of work. And again, just the, the modernization and evolution of programs, we hear a lot about evidence-based work and evidence-informed work. Um, I've got to say for my, my years working in the addiction field, like we could do more. <laughs> we, we need to be doing more research. We need to be doing, um, you know, modernizing our approaches and, and really conducting that research to really inform the evolution and updating of service provision. There just there doesn't seem to be a significant amount of body of work that exists to help drive our programs and the creation of programs. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I think it's, you know, when we, people want, unless it affects themselves or someone they know, uh, they tend to not be as invested to learning sometimes, not always. Um, but I think that's unfortunate. And uh you know, because there is so much to learn. And I think if we all understood um, that the data and the realities behind this, um, we could come together. My previous uh, guest, Trelana Manson, uh, who sadly lost her son, uh, Aaron Mitchell Manson, at the age of 26 uh, to substances, um, talked a lot about um you know, the shame and, and coming out of that and leaving that behind and, and, you know, kind of advocating for really bringing this out into the spotlight. And how do you see the future of, um, I know you can't kind of release, you know, what you have planned with Coast Mental Health or what your, you know, hopes and dreams are for the organization, the nonprofit, but how do you see the future of mental health and, and it developing as we head to conclude here? Yeah, uh, again, big question. I, I think there are those investments, as I said, the system investments that are required. Um, you know, again, just even providing access to, to appropriate mental health care and services is a big piece. Um, you know, on the substance use spectrum, like there's, oh, it's, it's so tragic. I mean, what is it? 11,000 people we've lost since the public health emergency was you know, announced mm-hmm. in 2016. Like, sound, does it seem like it's an emergency response to you? Like, I, I, no, it so, doesn't. I mean, there's, you know, and often these are overlapping sort of situations. But, um, you know, in terms of the future, I, you know, I think they are building that system. And I think that's what we hear often um, from government that this system didn't exist, that they're having to build it. And unfortunately, it's, you know, while that happens, people suffer. Yes. Um, but, but there is progress. And I think uh, we just need a range of approaches, everything from, people again just better understanding what even just again when you talk about sort of you know just supporting mental health promoting mental health awareness i think there's there's still again just those education campaigns just talking about these things is is a really big piece having access to basic counseling services and so things don't need to get bigger you know employers playing their role 
in um, in in understanding the impacts <laughs> that they, yes. they can have on their employees' mental health, and quite frankly, the ability to sort of help stave off or address or, or connect um, you know employees to, to services or programs, just even supporting them through that, you know, even having that understanding, um, you know, but. For me in Coast, I mean, it's it's not really a secret. As I said, I, I, like I, I still see housing and homes being a big piece. I, I really want to see more people doing some of this complex work around the co-occurring. Um, you know, the silos, uh, I hope to see them sort of coming down and more people being able to be supported that are experiencing diagnosed mental illness and, and, and a substance use disorder. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, seeing... You know, a significant reduction in the loss of lives so that, you know, the families you mentioned, Troy, I mean, listen to that, that podcast this week. I mean, it's just, we just hear it too often, you know, mm-hmm. it's, um, and, and thank God there are people like her and Mum Stop the Harm that continue to put a face to these, you know, to the stories and the numbers. Um, and I think you use the word, you know, they're not numbers. Um, and every month we sort of, you know, we get a new set of data and it's like, no, these are, these are humans. These are people. Um, and they have stories and they had lives and people who love them. And, uh, those lives were ended way too short. And, um, and things like drug policy and, and, and our services or lack thereof contributed yes. to that. Yes, I agree completely. Yeah, very well said. I usually end every conversation with asking about the guest's favorite nonprofit. Coast Mental Health is a nonprofit. Um, so I would love to see people learning more about Coast Mental Health and donating to your team's work. Um, so what is the area of Coast Mental Health that needs the most support from the public? Or um, how can people support you in the best way? Yeah, thanks. Um yeah, we are we are very fortunate to have an incredible foundation that, that does help us raise funds and, and really flow those back into our programs um, to deliver resources that so often aren't fully funded or don't actually have funding at all. So we've talked about a few of the things today, but like some of our like some of our housing programs don't have meals, you know, music and art therapy and just sort of some of the mental health um, housing, you know. Peer support training, I touched on that from the beginning, you know, since 2009, like we solely fund that through grants and donations. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I just encourage any listeners who are interested, um, please go check out our website at coastmentalhealth.com. Um, we do have a newsletter if you just want to learn a little bit more about the work we do. And um, if you're able to leave a donation, that would be amazing. I think there's a button on there as well for that too. But um, yeah, okay. I think, again, just learning more about this work and, and the work that we do and, and really just, again, there's always opportunities to volunteer and get involved as well. Okay. Okay, great. Well, I can I can vouch that um, I was thrilled when I heard that um, Kara McDonald was joining Coast Mental Health as CEO. They could not have a better CEO, uh, both via his experience and his understanding, but also through his passion and who he is as a human being. So I'm privileged to have him here and take this time to chat with me today on the podcast. So thank you so much for being here, Kara. Really appreciate your insight from such a senior role working with those who have mental illness. And thank you so much. Just thank you for everything you do. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for the conversation. And uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing more of the episodes that you bring. Excellent. Well, I look forward to delivering them. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. Be kind and connect with authenticity. You are listening to Rachel Sexton Connects.